This week's episode made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. Good morning and happy Tuesday, Memphis. I am Christy Mullen, Director of Marketing and Communications at New Memphis, and today I am joined by my special guest co-host, Anna Thompson. Anna Thompson, introduce yourself to the people. Hello, hello. I'd love to um, fill in here, and I'm excited to be with you all today. I'm super excited about this episode. (laughs) It is one of my favorite TED episodes to date. So, Christy, you can tell them about a TED episode. Yeah, guys. So, TED episodes. If you're a new listener to the show, first, welcome. But second, you're probably like, what the heck is a TED episode? So, each year, New Memphis hosts the annual TEDx Memphis Conference right here in our city, and these TED episodes allow us to revisit some of our favorite talks and, you know, dive in a little deeper with the creators while also allowing you, the listener, you know, to hear the talk itself live on air. So we have a jam-packed episode today, guys. This talk is killer. Anna Thompson is vibrating on a high frequency over here. She so freaking this stoked, talk. guys. So um, stoked. So we're not going to keep you waiting. Today's guest, Dan McCleary, is the founder and artistic director at the Tennessee Shakespeare Company, and he is here to talk about his 2020 TED Talk, Shakespeare in Kindergarten, or Let Rome Fall. So we're going to get right into the episode right now. All right. Welcome, Dan. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Good. We're so excited to have you. I think AT is like about to jump out of her seat. I'm so excited excited about this (laughs) one. I really am. So the way I always like to kick this off is I want to hear a little bit more about you. Like, who are you? How did you get to where you are now? Like, super simple question, right? Like, not difficult at all. Well, it's probably important because the the proposal I'm making in the talk, or I made in the talk, is is a fairly radical one. So I wouldn't want people to think right. <laughs> I'm some kook out of a dick someplace. <laughs> exactly. That's only partly true. I was I was I was born and raised in Memphis. Okay. And uh, it's partly in Bartlett, partly in Orange Mound, and then my my parents tried very hard. My dad ran Sears Crosstown uh, oh. as I was growing up, and when Dr. King was assassinated here, he. I was one year old, to give you a, a mind of how old I am, <laughs> and 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 so he he spent the night protecting the building, and um, they from that p- moment he tried very hard to get me into a school that would you know where I would flourish. Sadly, I did not, and um, and it was a private school, and they were telling me that uh, you either get kicked out or you know straighten up, and so I got taken out of school really quickly. I wasn't learning the way other children were learning. Okay. But as we found out later on, and as I know now, you know, and as I'm sure the two of you know, children learn very, very differently from one another. And I was introduced to Shakespeare at the traditional time Mm -hmm. in public school. Mm -hmm. I hated it. (laughs) But it was also because it was being taught in a way that Shakespeare probably made Shakespeare roll over in his grade. It was in in English class, and we were reading it. And that's not how I learned. I, I learned orally and 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 tactily and um so i i ended up learning best by going into theater and learning by doing as opposed to learning by rote and uh, went off to have a career as a as a classical actor and director and producer in new york and philadelphia and boston and i was at shakespeare and company which is um, an outstanding regional theater uh, and training ground for classical actors i got to be about 39 years old. And I decided that the people I was performing for, most of whom I knew in the Berkshires, mm-hmm. uh, uh, were, had been seeing their, if I was in Othello, they were seeing their fifth or tenth production of Othello, and they could talk to me about all the productions they'd seen and, mm-hmm. and speak somewhat scholarly about them. And that ceased to interest me. And so <laughs> bef- before I, th- I decided, before I turned 40, which was some magical number. I know, for me. you just I don't had know it in why. your head. Yeah, yes, <laughs> stuck I, a pin in that. Yeah. I thought that, well, you know, at the time at this company, we, we, I felt like we were lending a lot of lip service to part of our mission, which mm-hmm. was we felt like Shakespeare was everyone's birthright. Well, if that were true, I felt, then I needed to be seeing a different kind of audience. I needed to be seeing a more diverse audience, and I needed to be seeing an audience for whom Shakespeare was a first-time experience more often. That wasn't the case. Uh, And so, with Frank Bluestein, who was the man who introduced me to theater and ran Poplar Pike Playhouse at Germantown High School here, I I partnered with him and moved back to Memphis 
this is 15 years ago, mm -hmm. to start the state's first professional classical theater and education program. And I wanted to do it in Memphis and um, ensure that uh, a, a substantial part of our mission was, was delivering on Shakespeare being for everyone. And, you know, putting that into practice is, is quite something else. It's not yeah. just uh, putting classically trained professional actors on stage. It's making mm -hmm. sure the actors look like our audience. And it's making sure that the plays are accessible to our audiences. And so we go to them, we go to audiences all over Shelby County, and we make sure that the price is right. And um, we also train local actors as well. But in the course of this, um, I've learned in the last 15 or so years that uh, the work that we do with children, in specific to me, if I can say this in answer to your question, yeah. I, um, I love being with children. I absolutely love it. I'm the artistic director and I'm the founder, and so I'm raising money right. constantly. I'm with adults a lot, and you know, I'm, <laughs> we're dealing with professional yes. actors a lot, and I love that too. But I think the part of this that's unusual and put me in an unusual place is our education program run by Stephanie Shine at, at Tennessee Shakespeare Company is so strong and is working daily, daily and nightly, and has now moved into an outreach program as well with underserved communities here. And I coach baseball, I coach football as mm -hmm. well. Um, what I started to see were, were little people who looked like you know the three of us. And I could recognize the adults of us in the children. And um, I know I, I would be a kindergarten teacher, yeah. I think, if I, weren't a, <laughs> if I weren't a theater producer. And I love using Shakespeare as a way to discover young people, as a way to discover what turns them on or what wakes them up or what gets them talking or what gets them thinking or what is fun for them and where I get to see them start to realize some of their humanity and I can do it in football and we can do it in baseball mm -hmm. too I get I'm less concerned with wins and losses than I am in young people developing, developing. yeah the character yeah y yes and uh, you know the same is true in school and so I feel a great devotion to children and uh, specifically to, to children who, who live in Memphis and Shelby County, and because at one point you that were. was me. Yeah. So that's my, that's my personal testament. <laughs> well, way to kick off the podcast, <laughs> I know, man. I know. Like, this I'm, is great. I'm already like itching to yeah, get to I know, TED go. Talk. I just, but, uh, <laughs> but I will calm myself and I will ask you some other preliminary questions before we get to that. Um, so the we that you were talking about earlier is Tennessee Shakespeare Company. Yes. The founder. Yes. Okay. Yes. So tell the audience who may not understand just like the synopsis of what Tennessee Shakespeare Company is. I know that you talked briefly about a little bit about what y'all do, but why it's so critical. When I was a child here, we, my family and I, um, we didn't have access to professional theater, okay. certainly to Shakespeare theater. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe even if we did, I'm not so sure we would have attended. We didn't, we weren't really a culturally um, affluent family. And it really wasn't part of the culture in Memphis. Music was and, and barbecue was, but, and, and, not that I, and I love both, but, <laughs> but classical theater was not. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I wanted to see if I could help fill a void. And there's, we're very culturally rich in Memphis but still a void, as of 15 years ago, was professional theater and certainly professional classical theater. And by this, I mean a theater company that is dedicated to uh, not just Shakespeare's works, but primarily Shakespeare's works, but classical pieces of dramaturgy and, and literature that I see dying off uh, or becoming less popular. And produced professionally, which is employing the professional unions in the country, the actors' unions, stage managers' unions, designers, stagehand unions. In other words, uh, theater for whom uh, it is a full-time livelihood mm -hmm. for these actors and designers, and that means frequently going out of town to hire them and, and developing in-town talent as well. It's expensive. It's an expensive mm -hmm. endeavor, but I don't believe I should be paid as an artistic director if I'm asking an actor uh, to work 40 hours a week as well, and I'm not interested in them volunteering their time. I, they've, they've honed their talent, and this is how they should make a living. 
so it was with that premise that I brought this audacious idea to Germantown and to Memphis. And we, we hit a lot of political uh, roadblocks. Of course. Uh, but we raised money for the first season. Our first season was two, 2008 when we, we named it and charted ourselves Tennessee Shakespeare Company. We raised money rapidly with the notion that, or on the mission, that this was going to only ever be a professional endeavor. This would only ever be classically inspired. And this would only ever be, uh, or the, the main stage performances would only ever be attendant with an education component. This is not always the, the, the case with regional professional <laughs> theater companies. Right. Frequently an education outlet or program is part of uh, the programming of a theater company, but it's, it's rare for one to be um, as centrally focused in terms of programming as ours is mm -hmm. at Tennessee Shakespeare Company. And so here 15 years down the line, if I may say what I feel really good about is our ability to hew really closely to that initial three-part mission. And it clearly was, um, it was a need for the people who remain our, our, our advocates and our supporters, not just our board, but um, the Memphis City Council, which recently funded us as well, and certainly the city of Germantown. We're in every single school district. We've been in over 120 different schools. And even during COVID, when we weren't able to be with students in person inside, we'd still be teaching them out in their parking lots, in their cafe gematoriums. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's a great and, word, and yes. Yeah. Digitally as well. Yeah. So we've gotten to the point now, specifically with young people and their teachers and their administrators, where they want us, Tennessee Shakespeare Company, and our programming, specifically our Romeo and Juliet project, which we can talk about yes. if you like. Don't you to, worry. Okay. We will. Oh, yes. It's <laughs> to, on the list. To, to, to be uh, a, an important component as part of their state-mandated curriculum for the Shakespeare module and for their ELA, their English language arts uh, classes. And um, that is, on days when things are really tough, and they have been for 18 months, even more so than usual, obviously, I, 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 th I think of this, of, I think of Shakespeare now being in demand in our school system as opposed to being, you know, a foreign attendant, and not just to be read in Shakespeare, but to get young people up on their feet and playing with Shakespeare, speaking Shakespeare, and then... Um, boy, a whole bunch of terrific things happen, which we can talk about if you like. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, sorry, I'm jumping no, in again, no. Chrissy. I'm like, okay, so I'm so excited. Um, So, again, before we get to your TED Talk, which I've been teasing and alluding to for so long right now, um, what is happening right now at Tennessee Shakespeare Company? Like, what, what shows, what things could the general Memphis community expect from Tennessee Shakespeare Company in the fall of 2021? Well, we just... Uh, we just finished, I was mentioning, uh, when we talk about making sure Shakespeare is for everyone, you, you, know, you have to put that into practice. Yeah. And that's expensive to do, and it takes generous people. Evans Petrie PC is, um, and I mention them because they, they're, you know, it's a firm of, of, of great legal minds and lawyers, but they, they, were, they sponsored uh, as an extraordinary conflation of three of Shakespeare's plays that we just completed three days ago. It's called Henry VI, King Henry VI, The Wars of the Roses. And of course, in the second part, the second part of Hing King Henry VI, the famous quote is spoken that most people may not know it's attributed to this play, which is, first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. Yet, <laughs> Evans Petrie was still very kind enough They were like to, brand to opportunities. Yes, they, yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, and so we'll, we'll put them into the we put them into the play at a point where they they encourage Jack Cade yeah. and the Rebellion not to kill, or at least you know the sponsoring lawyers. That's hilarious. But <laughs> what what they sponsor is something we call the Free Shakespeare Shoutout Series, and okay. we took the three plays of Henry VI, which are three of the earliest history plays. Which, by the way, a history play for Shakespeare's patrons was like. Um, whatever, you know, uh, uh, Black Panther or Captain mm -hmm. America is for us on, well, in the film. Well, don't get me started on Marvel <laughs> on this podcast, sir. <laughs> That's what these were. These like, were action-packed yeah. uh, fisticuffs and political maneuverings, but it was how people learned their history. And 
they gravitated towards mm-hmm. it. They were excited about it. Well, the Henry Six plays don't get a lot of play in the United States. And so we rolled the three plays into one 90-minute production, or I should say Stephanie Shine did. <laughs> and we, produce it, we produced it in nine different venues from Collierville Outdoors, these are all outdoor venues, yes. to downtown right down here on the I, river. I did see, yes. And um, in Overton, Overton Square as well, Lakeland, Bartlett. And even if someone rolls by on a skateboard for five minutes <laughs> and hears Shakespeare, yeah. that's enough. It's free, it's 90 minutes, and these are our teacher actors who are a repertory company who are on contract with this for three to four months. And... Um, uh, and then we talked to the audiences afterwards as well. It was it was really really exciting and a and a really exciting way to introduce the plays uh, to Memphis. It's the first time I've been able to say it's a regional premiere or a premiere yeah. of any kind for a Shakespeare play. Oh my word, yeah, <laughs> for real. Well, but our next play is uh, well, this same group is actually in rehearsals right now for uh, a ninety minute Macbeth, a ninety minute Romeo and Juliet okay. that goes out into our school system. We'll also be having public morning matinees on our Tabor stage in November and early December. And then I'm directing a new play by Lauren Gunderson called Ada and the Engine, which is a really, really exciting play. And Lauren Gunderson is the most produced playwright in the country, has been for the last two years. Um, She, she, in this play, features, and I'd never heard of this young woman. I knew of Charles Babbage, who was a Victorian era inventor of the difference machine. But it was a um, it was a dream of his, and he didn't actually put it into into uh, into practicality. It wasn't until young Ada it came into his life, the daughter of Lord Byron, and uh, introduced him to the first computer program. In other words, zeros and ones. She heard music. Here's another child who was learning in a very yes. different way than what was traditional. Yes, and so she brought her poetry and sense of rhythm to Babbage's scientific thought. And then here we have a marriage of, uh, of hearts uh, and also of the poetic and the scientific in one play. And it's, 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 so it's, it's based on reality, but it has a, a, a beautiful theatricality to it. We'll be producing that from November uh, 11 to the 21st. And then our Southern Literary Salon includes Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams and uh, the extraordinary writing of Jesmyn Ward out of Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, those, are those, those salons where we read their right. works, we act their works, and then we talk with our, our cocktail Open drinking audience. Yeah. That's right. Uh, those go from December through March. And then we're doing my favorite play that's not Shakespeare's. Um, we're producing Cyrano de Bergerac in uh february and march really and then on on our Tabor stage and then our jack jones children's literacy gala which supports all of our education and outreach happens on uh, april 23. i mean just guys you have a lot to go to i didn't realize you guys did so much um so i guess kind of my question is you guys to hear you talk one you're passionate about what you do you love what you do and I feel like that probably reverberates across the whole company itself. But you have this thing where you're breaking down the conception people have that you have to be this certain kind of person, you have to be this certain kind of scholar and have this certain kind of understanding to go to things like this and take them in and learn from them. And I think that's what's so exciting to me when I hear you speak about your work is you are really breaking that wall down. And you're like, no, this is for everyone right it's so and again back to the subject matter uh i i glean this through children yes if and and i'll I'll say my one of my first radical things if we can just get ourselves as adults out of the way and let children play and I don't mean just with Shakespeare, with just mm-hmm. about anything. Let them play and let them be engaged, and not just mentally, but physically and, and verbally and orally, and let them have a moment to, more than a moment, to imagine and to create. I, I you know, early on when I was trying to sell uh, this notion of Tennessee Shakespeare mm-hmm. Company and Shakespeare in every single classroom, because I believe Shakespeare should be in every single classroom and every day. I, I was knocking on doors. I went to every 
at then by at that point city of memphis school some schools let me in others didn't i was offering myself for free and the teachers who or administrators who would let me in were interested in giving their teachers a rest so a physical rest so they'd go away and i'd take all the detention hall students or take them after school and when there was no electricity or in the classroom and what what i discovered was there any negative connotation that was associated with Shakespeare had come to them from adults mm-hmm. and well-meaning adults. These weren't adults out to do them harm. Right. Mm-hmm. It was adults telling them, and I quote, this is not something you're going to understand or this is not something you're going to use in your life. Mm. Two things that could not be less true right. about what William Shakespeare has to teach us. And frankly, what we already have learned now innately as part of our DNA about William Shakespeare. So I started to remove adults from the process, and then I started, <laughs> then I started to ensure that the classroom teachers were partners with right. us. So we started to train teachers as well. So Let's they were the partners source. with that. Yeah. Exactly. Children love a challenge. They love to feel challenged and know they're in a safe environment to do so physically safe, psychologically safe, emotionally safe, to explore. And when they explore, they discover themselves. And for me, teaching and coaching in in many areas, the platform, if I can call it that, a platform that works best, that gives us the widest, greatest human is William Shakespeare. And so when you say, um, you know, if we might be breaking Shakespeare down or breaking the plays down to introduce people, it really is an inspiration from seeing what Shakespeare's audience, mm-hmm. imagining, what Shakespeare's audiences would have wanted. Right. Many of them couldn't read. And if there were women, nearly 100% of them couldn't read. And so they went to experience themselves and their history and who each other were and to hear music and to see dance and to see, to see fighting and to see romance on stage without reading anything, without having a playbill, without having read the play. And they could pay two cents to do this. And so I'm always thinking of those of us, myself included, who as a child or in my family, would have been able to pay two cents Mm -hmm. to go experience this. And even if I had heard a word that I didn't know, honorificabilitudinitatibus, out of Love's Labor's Loss, for instance, it's the (laughs) actor's job. Super casual, it's fine. (laughs) It's it's the actor's job to embody, inhabit, and provide context for the word. So I don't stand for any of this, this is old English or this is language we don't understand. This is our language. It's the language we speak now. We even quote it. And what better way, as I have found, to engage a child in literacy than to have them speak a word like honorificabilitudinitatibus. Yeah. I'm not going to even yeah. try. They get to try and <laughs> spell it if they want to, yeah. but they get to try and imagine what the word means. Mm-hmm. And then they get interested in seeing what the word looks like. Right. And then they get interested in saying, well, what's the context for this word? Oh, who said this word? Oh, could I say that, please? Well, yeah. yes. The possibility you may. of understanding has been open. Exactly. I think you just kind of perfectly teed up to your TED Talk. We have some other questions, obviously, that will come after. I feel like, yeah, they can come after. Yes, they more than we just got to get into it because I think we've teased the audience long enough. So, guys, here is Dan McCleary's 2020 TEDx Memphis Talk titled Shakespeare in Kindergarten or Let Rome Fall. <laughs> I'm thinking of a particular country. In this particular country, corruption is evident at the highest level. (laughs) The environment is left unprotected. Peace accords crumble. A proud and mighty military is put into harm's way. Refugees are refused. The gulf between the rich 
and the poor widens. Walls are built. Libraries vanish. Their books replaced with the writings of organized religion. A government susceptible to foreign influence is unfaithful to its constitution and its people are divided and demoralized. And then the fifth century barbarians invade and down falls the Roman Empire. The end. <laughs> hey, it does not have to end this way for us, but where do we find ourselves now? I propose to you a radical, non-political remedy from a radical playwright who is long dead. We should formally adopt the playing of William Shakespeare's plays into our federal and state education curriculum, starting in kindergarten with five-year-olds. And guess what? We already have a legitimate way in to pilot this proposal. Do you know the one writer who's still named by name in our common core? It's not Sylvia Plath. William Shakespeare. Now notice I say uh, playing with Shakespeare's plays, not, not reading Shakespeare's plays. Shakespeare did not write to be read. Shakespeare was a playwright writing plays to be played in playhouses by players before playgoers. And most of his audience members couldn't read anyway. And even if they could, the English language was volcanic with change. I think that if I didn't run Tennessee Shakespeare Company in Memphis, I would aspire to be a kindergarten teacher. Have you seen what happens in kindergarten class? Whoa, they play! And have you seen what a five-year-old can learn? Anything. Nothing is impossible. All challenges accepted. I was introduced to Shakespeare when I was in ninth grade. It was a horrific experience. Ninth grade. Ninth grade? Anyone? Ninth grade? Is that right? What was the play? Romeo and Juliet? Brilliant. Who thought this one up? For 13 and 14-year-old children. Now here's a play in which five children end up murdered. <laughs> and after the first 14 lines, you know how it's going to end. Man, sign me up for more of that. I want to know more about that playwright. Uh, Tennessee Shakespeare Company's education director, Stephanie Shine, introduced me to the notion that maybe what Shakespeare was doing with Romeo and Juliet was he was giving us strategic points in the play that you and I and our children could reflect on how we might respond differently to these given circumstances than his characters. Well, at Tennessee Shakespeare, this inspired us to create something called the Romeo and Juliet Project. And this is a four-part residency, education residency, that goes into tens of high schools in Memphis every single year. It's got three goals. Raise language arts grades, increase student compassion, and reduce the instances of violence among children. And guess what? Not for nothing, but after nine years, it works. But here's something we discovered in ninth grade classes. Too many of our students couldn't, can't, read the text. And too many of those students are years behind their literacy level. Well, okay, but you know what? our students still could experience the text as Shakespeare's playgoers did. They still have their senses, have eyes and ears, they can speak, they can roll around on the ground, crawl, speak, act, dance, fight with pool noodles. So we introduced Shakespeare's oral tradition into the classrooms. We kicked the chairs and tables out of the middle of the room and we feed, verbally feed the text into the students from behind and they repeat the text and they play the play with each other. I get moved a lot when I think about the young people playing with Shakespeare's text. What if 
What if, instead of Romeo and Juliet, we introduced our children to Shakespeare through his science fiction, through his comedies, through his action-packed histories? What if, instead of his tragedies, we worked up to them over the course of a 13-year academic period? What if, instead of memorizing Shakespeare, children played with Shakespeare? Your if is your only peacemaker, Touchstone says, and as you like it. Our children today, my children, I have twin boys in fourth grade in public school, your children, our children today are taught through so many standardized forms and websites and videos and state-mandated testing periods that there is precious little time left for creativity, for the arts, for exploration without the fear and shame of failure for humanity. That's what I want. I want, I'm bearing the lead, I want our United States of America to make the teaching of humanity as important as reading, typing, and arithmetic. When children play with Shakespeare, here are three discoveries they will make that will stay with them and our country for a lifetime. Compassion, diversity, and peace. Compassion. When children take on Shakespeare's characters, they learn what it's like to walk around in another person's shoes. Do you know? And then they get awakened to their own innate compassion. You know, when that happens, it makes it really hard for a child to do harm to himself and to others. Two months ago, we were doing Romeo and Juliet in an area high school, and a young girl was, on, was speaking Juliet's text and in her anonymous survey that she sent to us, she said, the character I most identify with is Juliet. We ask, why? Well, because I often want to kill myself too. Well, we didn't know who it was, but we told the classroom teacher, she identified the student, she went to the principal, and they got the student professional help. The student is alive. I don't ever want someone to tell me that Shakespeare doesn't make our lives better or can save lives when someone's compassion is awakened. Diversity. Holy cow, Shakespeare should have been dead far before he ever died. He should never have gotten off half of his plays. What he put on the stage was illegal. Everyone should have looked like me, white and male. But instead, he put all of you onto stage, regardless of your race, your religion, your politics, your gender, who you loved. Two years ago, we were doing Romeo and Juliet, and our actor playing Juliet, Kiana, who is African-American, had finished the play, and a young student came up to her. She was also African-American. And she said to Kiana, I never thought Juliet could look like me. Well, after I got over the profundity of that statement, I was angry about it, and I asked myself, well, why not? We're at fault. We're behind. The United States of America, yes, we're born in violence, but we should be leading the world in embracing diversity, not behind. Well, Shakespeare catches us up. Peace. Through choreographed stage combat, Children learn that violence holds harmful consequences. You know, we, we teach Shakespeare in many lockups in Memphis. And one thing we've learned from those people who are there, and these are, these are juvenile defenders, violent crimes. They're not 18 years old yet. It's not just true regionally, it's through national, true nationally. The reason why they're there, for so many of them, is shame. They've experienced public shame. And they acted from it. Oh, Shakespeare loves shame. He loves it. But only in relationship to honor. 
Honor and shame he puts into antithesis all the time. Imagine a generation of children being raised that could identify their own sense and value system around the honor and the consequences and complexities of their own shame. Well, you don't have to imagine very long, do you? You know what we get? A less violent United States of America. I do believe that humanity should once again play a central role in every child's formal education. To me, that means the arts need to be taught every day, not once a week. More specifically, it means Shakespeare, and more radically, it means Shakespeare starting in kindergarten or let fall Rome. Now come on, Hamlet, get off the bench. Thank you. Guys, we are back. You are listening to us live on WYXR, and we are here with Dan McCleary talking about his TEDx Memphis talk from 2020. And it's, guys, we're diving into all the things. So I know this is one of AT's all-time favorite TEDx Memphis talks she has heard. Truly. I mean, I know we say that like every time we have a TEDx <laughs> speaker, but really and truly, because I was at the 2020 TEDx Memphis, but I was in the lobby. I was doing ticket, like I was do like doing registration yeah. and like people who came in day of and wanted, so I didn't really get to experience it the way the audience did. So watching it back, it is so good. It really is. So the beginning is obviously intentional. <laughs> How did you decide to start your TEDx Memphis talk the way that you started it with such strong comparisons that make the American mind wander? <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's a, um, that I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I felt such a sense of tragedy and de depression at what was going on politically for us in the country. And uh, the, of course, this was just a few weeks prior to COVID yes. uh, hitting, and um, uh, so a lot of things, obviously political things have changed, and then in January, um, that in the, the enormous insurrection and violence that occurred in our nation's capital shifted me again to many of us, um, and then COVID's effect has obviously um, deepened the tragedy around it. But it's also really helped me focus the programming as well that we do at Tennessee Shakespeare Company. But in thinking theoretically or even philosophically about it, it's only um, uh, affirmed this notion that uh, out, of the, out of the depression, you know, and certainly the depression of the last 18 months that I hear so many people speaking of, that you, uh, a human, might have a. Imagine there's one choice. One can either give into it, or one can find something out of the morass to grow. It might just be one small thing, but something to develop and something to grow. And fortunately, at least for me, my uh, passion being, or one of my passions being Shakespeare. I was able to and continue to be able to lean on him and his experience with a pandemic and to see what he produced inside of a four-year span, for instance, in the early 17th century, when uh, playhouses were open for perhaps six months, you know, for six to nine months in a four-year period. And so why didn't he go broke? Well, he was writing. He was writing uh, King Lear in that time, and Antony Cleopatra, and Macbeth. He didn't stop. And uh, so he's, he felt clearly his work was essential. And as depressed as I was, and as frightened as I was, and I have twin boys, and um, so my, my care wasn't just for me, it was, mm -hmm. it was for others as well in our families. Um, well, I'll, t I'll say this too. I had also just finished, just before I was asked to do this, which I was honored to do, uh, this, this speech, I had served right down the street at 201 Poplar on a, tr on a, uh, a, a trial, in a, on a jury, and mm. I, was the, I was the foreman. 
and it was a um, it was a it was a terrible terrible case. It was um, it was a rape case, and so we were impaneled, and I found myself waiting an awful lot, and I was reading an awful lot about Rome as well, and it wasn't light reading, but it was very focused reading, and I was reminded in my in that reading that. Um, and in this, this sort of uh, frightened depression as well, that, um, that there was this period between um, Cicero and Marcus Aurelius where, uh, you know, they were moving from a polytheistic uh, civilization into more of a monotheistic, you know, it was a Christian um, uh, culture and civilization. And in that period, it was perhaps 200 years, this is debatable, but it was about 200 years, um, this is going back 2,000 years. But how, how the minds flourished and culture flourished from the establishing of libraries, and which are the same notion that we have now, reading rooms and, and shelves and the Dewey Decimal System. Uh, <laughs> but there was Aristotle and, 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 and Plato and Homer. And then as the organized religion started to move its way through Rome, it started to uh, get rid of libraries and started to get rid of what they called pagan uh, texts that were, you know, pagan wasn't even really a word then. It was, for, it was a, another anything name for peasant. Other, yeah. right. uh, anything other than. <laughs> yes, and, I, and it started to narrow thought. It started to narrow culture. And then when the Germans uh, sacked uh, Rome, you know, by 476, AD, there was, they had little interest in reading and uh, largely Christian. And so there was what, what need did they have to read to learn more? And so libraries were centuries from being, from being recreated. And I saw a parallel um, or an allegory between our two civilizations. And as I see in our state curriculums more and more, uh, that fiction and poetry start uh, ceases to become required. Mm -hmm. um, and as I see even the Shakespeare module, even in the Shakespeare County school system, this starting this year starts to become uh, optional. Then, because Shakespeare for the longest, when I gave this speech, Shakespeare for the longest period has been the only writer mentioned by name in state curriculum right. as needing to be taught. There was a quote-unquote Shakespeare module. Well, not every Shakespeare school is opting in, and this is partly due to COVID, but it means we're going back to more back. rote yeah. learning and, and remote learning and memorizing things and all these things we do on the computers, and I know too well because both of my boys do this every day as well. More time is spent on technology right now than on the actual content, I find, in my own household. And, you know, my children are, are reasonably intelligent, and uh, certainly more so than I am when it comes to technology. And yet here we are finding ourselves dealing with the barrier between learning and the thing that needs to be learned. And so I've, I've, that, that's what prompted it. It was a lot of, um, and this, you know, it's, this is so with people who consider themselves you know, doing things creative for a living, that frequently out of an emotional morass and or an emotional enthusiasm that um, a thought may happen or an allegory may happen. And so for me, as the foreman on that jury um, and, and focusing on the reading and being away from my family and then seeing what was happening politically, it felt very dire. It felt very black and white uh, contrasted, like that... Um, surely, maybe it's not a silver bullet if that's the right word to use or phrase to use, but surely there must be, I'm always looking for the simple thing at the end of the page, all the thinking mm -hmm. and all the talking mm -hmm. I'm doing right now. I'm always looking for the thing at the bottom of the page that we, that's actionable, that we yeah. can do, and it might be drastic or it might be radical, but then they all are. Mm -hmm. And if we can make not just the arts, but Shakespeare, uh, or more appropriately, humanism or humanity is part of our reading, writing, and arithmetic, then I think we cease to see 
uh, what we're seeing with young adults right now. This has nothing to do with teaching acting, nothing to do mm-hmm. with getting, with preparing young people to be future ticket-paying audience members. This has to do with our humanity and ensuring that we're not a repeat of, of a civilization that would allow its libraries to be destroyed. Right. We're not a civilization that repeats itself being one that allows only one idea in one book to be permitted in our public education. Interesting. I think yeah. you like really just kind of led into, you know, the programming you guys are doing to try and accomplish some of these things. And in your talk, you touched on the Romeo and Juliet project. I know we alluded to it earlier before you play your talk, but can you kind of give us an update on where you're at with that work today? The, the Romeo and Juliet project was birthed out of a request that former Mayor Wharton made of all the arts organizations about a decade ago. And there was, they were really struggling. The government was really struggling with how to address uh, armed violence among teenagers in multiple neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and one of them being in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And to my knowledge, Tennessee Shakespeare Company's response to that is the only one still living, and it was the Romeo and Juliet Project. We're a decade in now. And since the talk, uh, of course, we've been ravaged by COVID. But as I mentioned earlier, so many of the schools, even digitally, still wanted us to come in and participate. The notion is that Romeo and Juliet, which is the play I was introduced to and despised when I was (laughs) a freshman in high school. Many of us, yes, that would be the same. Yes. Well, you know, and this is usually for people who don't want to talk to me about Shakespeare. This is usually where we find common ground. Romeo and Juliet. Freshman in high school, hated it. Well, that's me too. And Until the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Well, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> My word, Christy. Um, in, in Dan's opinion of us, is just like, wah, No, wah. no, no. Actually, no, listen. look, I wrote a paper once about the use of comedic relief in Shakespeare's play, so I'm here for it. Shakespeare would have loved film. He would have loved cinema for his plays and science fiction. Yes. I think he would have loved the play um, uh, or, and the film. I, but my question has always been, well, why is it, why in the world are we doing Romeo and Juliet, as you just heard, it, with people who are the same age as the children who will be dead, five of them, by the end of yeah. the play, and it gets called a love story. But frankly, it's a terrific comedy right up until it isn't. And, yeah, it's funny until it's not. Yes, and it has this very, very powerful young female at the center of it, which we don't give enough we don't give enough attention mm-hmm. to, especially for girls who are freshmen in high school. This girl, Juliet, has found her voice. And so many girls, by the time they get to this age, start losing their voice. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, this is an area that we haven't really, you know, explored as, as much as this, this other area with Romeo and Juliet. But it is a very, 1895, it's a really powerful young female voice or mature female voice. But we use, and I think Shakespeare and Stephanie Shine, who created the project, thinks that Romeo and Juliet is a play that where Shakespeare is giving us, after all, he tells us how the story is going to end, you know, in the first sonnet. Well, then why do we need to see the play? Because he's giving us multiple points to make decisions around it. And so we give these to students. And we don't ask the students to read the play. This, their classroom teachers mm-hmm. may do this. But we get them on their feet playing, and our teachers will have two per classroom. It, we'll do 700 sessions in a year, and plus performances of these. So these are 18 students. This is not something in the big gym. This is in their classroom, and we get them on their feet speaking, and we drop the text into them so they repeat it to themselves and to each other. And then we get them talking about how they might change this pivotal point in the play and what they might do in their own lives. And then we get them to talk about what, would hap- what might have happened mm-hmm. and what has happened, what could happen in their own lives to suggest how they walk away from or diffuse armed violence in their lives. And what may have spurred it is almost always public shame, by the way, for boys and men. And okay. if you talk to men in, in lockup right now, and we teach, we teach at all three lockup locations in Memphis. Yeah, you referenced that in your... It's we you know it's quite an education. We learn yeah. what what it, what prompts the violence, and so often it's it's being publicly shamed. And Shakespeare knew this, and he puts this onto stage as well. 
And uh, so we get young people talking about Romeo and Juliet and the characters they're playing. We get them talking about this in relationship to their own lives. And at the end of it, yes, it's true. They're ELA, they're English language arts. They all rise. There's, there's, never, there's never anything other than an increase in their grades. So for some people, that's all that interests them. Right. Okay, well, we can talk about this. But the fact of the matter is, these young people many of whom are still reading at the third grade level, are now engaged in wanting to read. They're excited about reading. They might never read another Shakespeare play, but most of them want to. But the point is they're, they want to read, and we give them books to read from our friends at the Benjamin Hooks Public Library. We get hundreds of books every year from them. And we, just, we give Shakespeare texts away to those young people who show an interest in continuing to read but also their compassion increases. And when their compassion increases, and this is every single child in every school, this is not just lest our listeners think that this is something that's, you know, just in public school systems like I went into, and this has nothing to do with the private schools or charter schools. Nothing could be further from the truth. Compassion is not just me for you, but it's me for me. Too. And so we so often we see self-harm among uh, our children, again, specifically with girls at this age. Mm-hmm. And Romeo and Juliet speaks an awful lot to self-harm and uh, the prompts around that as well. So when we get young people talking about it and talking to each other about it, they're actually rehearsing life-saving or life-changing possibilities mm-hmm. for their own lives. And they're rehearsing these in school yeah i loved that like that's the thing that interests me so much about the romeo and juliet project is that as you go through it you give them that option that choice of like how how was this person feeling how did they react and how could you react differently so there is that rehearsing of exactly what you just said how would i diffuse the situation how would i make a better choice how would i use my critical thinking skills to have empathy and compassion here instead of letting my ego get in front of it and act out in a different way. I think that is just beautiful and so profound. Thank you. Transferable life skill is really what you guys are doing. Like you're showing them those options on the table and you're teaching them how to transfer that into their own lives, which is very powerful when you stop and take a look around at it. It, it is. And, um, but I, I want to stress that it, it, it comes from, playing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Shakespeare, as I say, was a playwright and his players were called players and they were playing yeah. plays and playhouses. There is a sense of play and children constantly retrain adults that where they learn is when they play. And it's one thing for us, you know, three adults to sit here and talk about how um, a child can learn and here is Shakespeare, and that sounds like a good recipe. Let's put them in a pot together. But the fact of the matter is they have got to be on their feet playing. They've got to be on their feet speaking and responding because otherwise, if they don't rehearse it, if they don't rehearse, then they won't act it. They won't act it outside the walls. Right. It's, it's this, it's, so it's homework. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, we just don't call it that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, frankly although this is a bit off the topic, I wish every subject were like this, that math and science and geography had play in it. Well, yeah, my dad, so my dad actually, when I was in elementary school, he would have me go out um, in the driveway and I would, we would play like um, whatever that basketball game is, like to do my spelling work. Horse. Horse. I was going to say like cat or something. I knew it was an animal. (laughs) Um, So we would do that to do my spelling words. Because he was like, you're going to remember this when you're sitting there at your test and you're like, I don't remember. I don't remember. You're going to remember that motion, the, the like, That's exactly like right. you said, the senses of what was around this and you'll be able to succeed. You'll be able to push through and have that memory. You have a physical memory. You have a sense memory of it um, or a tactile memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, my two boys, they, each of them learn wildly differently from each other. And this is true across the spectrum. But and some some young people, of course, this might this might not be the best thing. But I'll tell you, when I see young people for whom uh, standing up and speaking 
is a terrifying event. You know, we're trained to, as teachers, with how to deal with that young person. And this is something that an actor has. And it's one of the first things an actor will do once the actor knows she's going to um, make acting her career. And it's the hardest thing to do, which is to stand in front of a group of strangers with your hands at your side and just to breathe and to see the audience and let the audience see you. That's it. No, no text, no speaking. You don't have to do anything except be. And frequently, you know, there's a breakdown around it. And the earlier we can uh, provide an opportunity for courage for young people to stand up and be seen, then the more encouraged they feel to be heard. So often we find that the young people who might not yet have the courage to stand up and be seen and speak have an awful lot to say. And awful lot to say for the good of those around them or an awful lot to say that cries for help. And so Shakespeare is an opportunity to teach courage as well. Gosh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you touched on this before we uh, played your TED Talk, and I know that you talked about it in your TED Talk, but that Tennessee Shakespeare Company is very intentional about access, and that also includes diversity. Like if you can... It's hard to imagine something if you can't see it. So it's very important to have actors or players, as you just said, look like the audience. So can you talk to me a little bit about what that means for Tennessee Shakespeare Company? Yes. Um, well, I'll say it in a radical way. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll, I'll say it in a radical way. I profile. When I go casting and hiring, I profile. Mm -hmm. I... I want more female actors, more women actors in a Shakespeare cast than Shakespeare intended. I want more non-Caucasian actors and playwrights in a cast than William Shakespeare could be allowed yeah. to have. And that's certainly true in Memphis. It's been true, quite honestly, wherever I've been as a producer or director. But here... I just mandate it. You know, it's, it's one thing for me to walk into a classroom. I'm Caucasian, and, I, you know, and I'm in my 50s. And it doesn't matter, you know, how caring I might be or how smart I might sound or otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I might not look the part. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I accept that. What's really important to me, though, in going back and looking at Shakespeare's plays is there was not another playwright who was putting more women on stage, more children on stage, more of the quote-unquote other mm -hmm. on stage, more religions on stage, more races, more ethnicities on stage than Shakespeare dared to. He couldn't put a woman on stage. He couldn't put a Jewish person on stage. He couldn't put a black-skinned male on stage. But he wrote them onto stage. Mm -hmm. And... In Memphis, we're blessed with an awful lot of talent, and um, we try to keep them here. Yes. <laughs> I want them here for a long time. Yes. And, you know, um, uh, uh, when our audiences see, and I mean an audience member who doesn't look like me, the older white male, um, they see possibility in yes. addition to themselves. And... Uh, I, I, I love it. And as a director, I must also say, I love having a room full of actors who are as diverse as what Shakespeare wrote on paper but couldn't embody on stage. And it changes the script. It changes the text. And it becomes really exciting. You know, you can't produce Shakespeare professionally if you only go into it having one thought. Mm -hmm. Or there's going to be one outcome from this. It can't be. Shakespeare demands a multiplicity of opinions and thoughts be shared in the same room, and they get debated. Sometimes they get argued. But, you know, the words at that time, the English at that time was a changing language. And uh, as was, you know, the form of racism and prejudice was a changing act as well. And so as audiences went to the playhouse to learn how to speak a word, but words didn't have one definition. And one's approach to 
a Jewish person walking down the street or racism or, preju or, or a prejudice thought or a prejudice act or a political act or a religious act. For Shakespeare, it didn't have one response. He opened the door for a multiplicity of responses. And so when we inhabit Shakespeare's plays in 2021 with... Uh, more women than he was able to put on the stage. And with the actual ethnicities and races that he called for uh, in the scripts, then they really come alive and they come, and they come present. Uh, and I don't mean that just for, for instance, an African-American child from Central High School sitting in the audience. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to dumb it down like that. I mean, you know, for the three of us for anybody sitting there. The we hear it yeah. differently. Right. We appreciate it differently. And it opens a door to debate and communication. Yeah, I think that you're hitting on so many heavy pieces today. And, you know, you, um, we are actually, we're convening a panel later this year talking surrounding youth in the arts and kind of the importance of that. And, you know, those skills that you're taking in and learning from simple acts like play and you're doing it through Shakespeare. We have other friends like collage doing it through dance yeah. and et cetera. You know, and so I just am kind of interested in, you know, what do you think, you touched on it a little bit with the talent, but what do you think makes Memphis ripe for people doing this kind of work like y'all are doing at Tennessee Shakespeare Company? Well, there is a, uh, a culture in our hometown that welcomes, supports, even embraces guerrilla art or guerrilla theater. Um, Memphians love a good story and um, they are so generous um, and they can smell, I, I think. They get the <laughs> scent of, or they can get a whiff of something that's disingenuous. Mm -hmm. And it is very easy, I have observed, to be disingenuous when someone in my position talks about what we can do for children mm -hmm. or um, uh, uh, what we can do. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. access. Uh, well, it's one thing to talk about it. It's quite another to be able to do it. And what Memphis does is it gives us, there is an ethos here that welcomes finding a way, at least yeah. in my area, finding a way to produce theater. We love going to non-traditional spaces. We love awakening spaces that were never meant to be th mm -hmm. theatrical. We love going to people, bringing theater to people like Shakespeare did with his reduced uh, casts um, to let them know that Shakespeare is formally part of the cultural fabric and frankly it's part of the DNA fabric of them uh, as well and uh, so when I think when Memphis when Memphians sense the genuineness of the effort and the passion around the effort and then when they can see quantifiable results right. and they get to they mm -hmm. get to talk to young people or to other to other adult patrons about it then frequently that means much much more than seeing a board report or seeing the annual report, or seeing the Secretary of State's report on something. They like to see it, touch it, experience it, have a physical response to it, and that is very Elizabethan. <laughs> I, I love it. I see, Mem <laughs> I see Memphians as more Elizabethan, and children in Memphis as more Elizabethan in their response to theater than anywhere else I've been in the country. They, there is, um, there's a physicality and a conversation that happens between actor and audience that happens in Memphis that doesn't happen anywhere else. And Shakespeare would have loved that. <laughs> and I love it too. So it feels always to me very engaged, very welcoming, very right. loving, and very supportive. I love this. Okay, we could talk to you literally all day, but uh, for the sake of time, so our friends over at WIXR, don't get angry at us. Um, we are going to have to let you go shortly, but we cannot let you leave without telling our listening audience how they can get involved and support your work at Tennessee Shakespeare oh, Company. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, 
Well, I always say, talk to me. I'm not, <laughs> I'll usually pick up the phone. But uh, uh, Tennessee Shakespeare Company is located right at the park sides of, of Shelby Farms Park uh, in Memphis. And um, our website is tnshakespeare.org. And uh, anytime they call us, usually even at night, too, they'll get me. <laughs> they can call us at 759-0620 and, um, or stop me come to see a play and stop me in the hallway I'm always there and usually welcoming and holding the doors open um, and just even if there's not an ne interest necessarily in support I love hearing stories mm -hmm. and uh, if you're listening out there and you heard this interview and um, there's any part of it that that you respond to or a story in your own life you like about it give me a call I love to hear people's stories it's um, you know, I dream about them, I think about them, and often programming happens from right. them as well. So give us a call or come by. I'd love to, love to hear you and uh, see you. Yay! You heard it here first, guys. Go support <laughs> your local organizations that are making innovation possible for our city in general, but specifically the youth of our city. So thank you so much for being here today, Dan. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you both. Thank Bye. you. What an amazing episode, A.T. Truly speechless. We could have talked to him forever and ever. I know. I like, I'm like, can we just have like four segments just back to back dedicated to this? A four part episode <laughs> yeah. with Dan McLeary. Like just for us. You know, I think the listener gets plenty out of it, but it's mostly for us. Let's be real. Yeah. So guys, you heard everything here. You know, this is a special TED episode. So before we go, I just want to remind you to go to TEDx dash memphis.com and get your tickets for this year's tedx memphis conference that'll be at the levitt shell on october 30th i'm gonna jump in and have yeah. a plug for what we talked about in the episode which <laughs> oh, is yes. our celebrate what's right youth in the arts which will be on november 10th and we are so so excited about it so you can learn more at newmemphis.org and get your tickets for that there also yeah, guys, look, we have so much stuff upcoming. You need to come see Ted. You can see speakers like Dan take the stage with their big ideas. And then, you know, after that, you can just be like, hey, New Memphis, y'all are doing great work. I'm going to come over to celebrate what's right with y'all and the other people doing innovative, spectacular things like he was talking about in the arts in Memphis. So I know we've kept your time all morning. I hope you have a wonderful Tuesday, Memphis, and we will see you next time. Bye. This week's episode was made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com.